Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. After much deliberation and conversation with friends, I settled on that name for this TV show, or YouTube show as the case may be. And uh, I actually didn't think of the name. A friend of mine named Isaac Nevis thought of it. So Isaac, if you're watching this, get ready for fame and fortune. Um, and if you don't achieve it, Isaac made a really great uh, movie in which he plays a dancing zombie. And if anyone would like to see that, uh, there'll be information on how to contact me at the end of this show, and I'll send you a link. But um, the implication of the title, Buddha at the Gas Pump, is, if it's not obvious, is that ordinary people are awakening to states of consciousness or states of enlightenment or whatever you'd like to call them, which previously were thought to be extremely rare and difficult to attain. Now, I don't so much like the term enlightenment because, to my mind, that implies a perfected state, which may actually be rare. But there are very many gradations or degrees of awakening which people undergo. And many people in the Fairfield community, Fairfield, Iowa, have traversed quite a number of these degrees or these stages of awakening. So anyway, we thought that would be a good title, Buddha at the Gas Pump. Tonight's guest is Stan Kenz. And uh, I'll let Stan tell us a little bit about himself. But I thought I would start. It's my understanding, Stan, that um, your awakening was somewhat abrupt. And uh, you know that's not always the case. Sometimes people ooze into it so slowly they don't even realize it's happened. But in your case, it was unmistakable, right? Yes. Rick, thank you so much for having me as a guest. Sure. Today. And um, I really appreciate an opportunity to share um, what my experience is. I don't know if it's everybody's truth, but it's what I happened to me and how I, how I understand it. Um, it was an abrupt and very uh, quick um, and spontaneous experience for me, but it was led up to by years and years and years of desire and, and uh, interest and spiritual seeking. Um, the actual <coughs> event itself happened during a meditation period. I was um, meditating as I usually did every day, twice a day, and this was in the evening. I think it was sometime in October around 2000 and, uh, excuse me, 1994. And um, what happened was that I just became awake in my meditation or, or, or alive in consciousness and I realized that I wasn't breathing and that I hadn't breathed <coughs> for a very long time. And so I kind of observed that and I thought, well, what does that mean? You know, what's happening to me? And then the thought crossed my mind is, well, maybe you're not going to be here physically very much longer. <laughs> and at that time in my life, I fairly been comfortable with what my achievements were, my parenthood, my um, spousal relationships, and I wasn't really hanging on to, uh, to trying to stay in the physical form. And so it would have been okay with me to let it go. <coughs> and uh, what I decided to do was just to stay with my mantra very innocently and just to watch what happened <laughs> and uh, just observe it. And so that um, lively observation quality was, was very prominent in my awareness. And as I um, continued my mantra, um, I guess there was a sudden rush of fear, like, well, if you really push this, you might not be in the, in the world anymore, and you might be physically <coughs> dead. Hmm. And I just... Reminds me of a Stephen Wright joke. He, <laughs> he said uh, he broke up with his girlfriend because he wasn't really into meditation, and she really wasn't into being alive. <laughs> but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> so, so I just stayed with my meditation and, um, and my mantra, 
And then I started to experience some really profound uh, physiological uh, um, sensations, and they were based on different senses. I think the first one I experienced was the sound in my ears, and I can only relate it to the, the most um, intense noise that I have ever heard. And it's it kind of like if you could imagine your head being inside a Saturn rocket when it was launching. Oh. It was an amazing noise, so <coughs> much so that I don't believe human hearers could hear that. And you were sitting in a quiet room. I was just sitting in a quiet room. Right. And so my intellect kicked in and said, well, maybe that's the part of your brain that's associated with hearing, and maybe it's being starved of oxygen, and the nerves are sort of all firing, and that's your last thing you're going to hear. Huh. And then it subsided, <coughs> but the awareness didn't subside. And then, um, then came um, vibration, and, and uh, I, I really felt like Every cell in my body was, was vibrating to the point where it was going to disintegrate. Hmm. And, um, and then again, if, I... If someone had been looking at you, would they have seen you vibrating? Or was it, this is all have. on a subtle I level? I didn't really feel that my whole... I didn't feel it in a, in a relationship with my physical body. Mm -hmm. But they were very, very profound. They were more powerful than physical feelings. So mm -hmm. I kind of felt that they were sort of at an absolute level. or some level that I had never been to before. Mm -hmm. But it was extremely profound. And, um, and, I, and I, again, rationalize that maybe my senses of uh, touch, those nerves were dying, <laughs> they were all firing, and, and I was just going to let everything go. I didn't right. care. I was like, well, this is the experience that happens now. Mm -hmm. um, and then, so that proceeded, and then that calmed down, and then there was still awareness, and then there were explosions, like one an amazing, intense, um, continuous explosion of light, brighter than anything you could ever see with the human eye. Hmm. And then there was nothing, huh. absolute nothing. There was nothing but awareness. But that awareness seemed to be infinite. And, and it didn't have um, parameters around it. And, and then something very, very, very unusual happened that I had never experienced prior to that and don't very often experience since that time. There was sort of a questioning and an experience and a knowing simultaneously in my awareness. Hmm. Years later, I would find out when I came to MUM to go to school that that, that state- MUM being? Maharishi University of Management. Mm -hmm. That that state is called Sanghita, where there's three states of awareness simultaneously hmm. occurring. And that's a Sanskrit word, which mm -hmm. means three states of awareness simultaneously yes. occurring. Yeah. Okay. And so we're used to thinking in a very linear way, and we have the past and the future and the present. Mm -hmm. But in Sanghita, there's only now and everything is known in now. Hmm. And um, so as the desire to understand what I was, what was happening to me, as that was arising in my awareness, so was the explanation of what it was, or the knowing of the what it was. The answer was coming. Yeah. Uh -huh. And so the answer was, when I, when I thought, what am I? And I understood just at that simultaneous moment, it's not, it's not one before the other, it's simultaneous, mm -hmm. this is being. Hmm. And this is what you've always been. Hmm. And this is the nature of everything it is, is hmm. being. And being doesn't have a beginning or an end. It can't be destroyed or created. And it, and it goes on ad infinitum. And this didn't come some, uh, like some verbal thing. It was more no, like no, just it, a knowledge. It's a knowing, and it's a total knowing. It's a knowing beyond any question or reasonable doubt. And it's a deeper knowing than anything that, you could, uh, that I had ever experienced before in any state, in waking state, dream state, in any of, of my experiences in life. Mm -hmm. It was a knowing that transcended doubt, mm -hmm. yeah, or went beyond doubt. <coughs> yeah. so, so then 
I realized, well, I'm being, and this part of that, it's like, and, and in that instant, and I call that instant of that, of that cognition of, or the awareness of being, there's an, a great and incredible release of bliss for me, I experienced. Release meaning experiencing bliss. Yeah, yeah but yeah. it was in a state of awareness, not necessarily in a state of physical, I wasn't aware, there mm -hmm. was no relative world left mm -hmm. at that time. So it's not like your body was blissful, it was more like bliss. It was just, it was just pure, pure, pure state of bliss. bliss in and of itself. Yeah, just mm -hmm. pure, absolute, abject bliss, mm -hmm. and eternal bliss. And, and not only that, but it seems to expand simultaneously with always being. It, I, I kind of refer to it later on as though it were an atomic explosion, expanding in bliss in every direction simultaneously without end. Hmm. It, it just goes on with such incredible fulfillment that you would never, ever, ever, ever choose to leave that state voluntarily. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. so, so that was my experience. And then, um, and then at that moment of bliss, it seems like everything happens in that state of being to me, everything happens now because there is only now, but now is eternally now. So mm -hmm. it's very difficult to talk about it here in, in the waking relative state. Mm -hmm. Because when, you're, when I was being, in that fully cognizant state of being, there was only now and now was infinite. And now, of course, when I'm speaking to you, I'm in the relative and it's a linear reality, so mm -hmm. it's very hard to give a, an explanation. But in that unboundedness, there, there was such great joy, and I call it the mahahaha. I've always referred <laughs> to it as the mahahaha. Because it's such a great laugh. Maha means great. Yes. And what the joke is, the joke is at multiple, multiple, multiple levels of cognition. So the joke is, first of all, <coughs> there's no such thing as death. We're all immortal. Mm -hmm. And so that's a great release. The second is that nothing can ever harm you. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's a tremendous freedom. And every single thing that my intellect had interpreted throughout a lifetime as suffering or pain or was seen to be nothing more than a misinterpretation of who I've been. Hmm. And so it instantaneously relieved me of all the things that had happened up to that point in my life huh. um, that I thought were so important. The suffering in my childhood, or the struggles as an adult, or the um, friendships and relationships that I had that seemed to be challenged. I knew all of that was just as though it were somehow playing within my infinite nature to give give me the experience and richness of a point of view. Hmm. And yet, from this more expanded, infinitely expanded state of being, the transparency of an individual just faded away, it just dissolved. So I have a lot of questions for you based on what you just said, um, but I wanna, since you were just mentioning things that happened in your life, um, a mutual friend of ours told me that you had quite a hellacious <laughs> childhood and upbringing. And uh, you know, mine was no picnic at times, but yours sounds like it was a, a real, uh, quite a wild ride. And I think it would be interesting to juxtapose that yeah. with what happened to you. And it might actually encourage some people who feel that they've been damaged by life and have no hope of experiencing something like this because of all the traumas they underwent. So maybe we could go into that and don't spare us the gory details. <laughs> well, I don't really focus on the gory details. And, um, I appreciate you have a lot of questions. And one of the things that I came away from that experience with or retained is that I don't, 
have all the answers, but I don't have any more questions. Mm -hmm. So that was a really big insight for me. My childhood was quite an interesting childhood. Um, I had a, a, a mother that was mentally challenged and had to be hospitalized several times. I lived with um, in-laws that had, you know, the various uh, in-law uh, or, or relatives um, that had various uh, or dysfunctional behaviors like alcoholism and things of that nature. And, um, and yet at the same time, when I look back, I feel extremely grateful for that path because mm -hmm. I remember my mom's illness kind of always made it very important for me to try to seek some spiritual resolution to see if I could assist her in some way. Hmm. So I think that I kind of look at them as, as aspects of infinity that took a, a form to give me a path that allowed me to achieve what my life's goal was, when that was to understand hmm. the true nature of myself and to try to understand the nature of God and, the, and how things can appear to be so broken on earth and yet be perfect love. Hmm. So I think without those challenges, I would have never taken the direction that I actually took in life and never wound up where, where uh, you know, I became fully, completely satisfied with understanding that everything is perfect. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, I really think it I went through some similar things. My mother was in and out of mental hospitals and my father was an alcoholic and everything. And okay. I, I remember saying to my mother at one point after I had been meditating for some years and uh, I said to her, you know, whatever my upbringing was, uh -huh. it mu you must have done it just right because I'm really <laughs> happy with the way I ended up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she was happy to hear that. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's really good. Yeah. Huh. So, and, and I think that what happens is that we... Um, we're very, very fortunate, from my understanding, and I've done a lot of thinking about this, when we have that beautiful experience of being, and then a desire comes up in forever, and the desire isn't the individual's desire, but it's a desire that, that feels like it belongs to you because we identify with our own individuality. That desire, in, in the mind or the awareness of being, precipitates out into a whole universe and the planets and all the, all the molecules and time and space and the atoms all take position necessary to create the scenario or the, or the stage in which that life can be fulfilled. Hmm. So if we wanted to become enlightened in this lifetime, then all those players have to go into the play that allow us to take that path. Hmm. And it's really a, wonderfully, a, a wonderful gift of love. I always say everything's perfect and if you don't think so, you haven't seen it over a long enough time period. Hmm. <laughs> or from a broad enough perspective, yeah, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Now, when you told the story about your awakening, you re related something to us that happened in 1984 or so, I think you 94. said. 94, yes. 94. Um, but the implication is that you were changed permanently as a result of that experience. It's not like you went back to the way you had been. No, so maybe we can take it from like, that very day when you had that experience, you, you eventually opened your eyes. What was the world like at that point? Very interesting. Well, what happened was, prior to that experience, I used to think of myself as Stan Kenz, the person that was born on my birthday and lived the life I had remembered up until the time I had the experience. Hmm. After that experience, I was being who misidentified itself with my point of view. Hmm. <laughs> and, and so I sort of 
convoluted. I, I, I became where I was something in the world before. Now, the entire universe was within me. It, huh. it reversed itself. Um, and I've always known that since. Mm -hmm. And that uh, knowing seems to be available to me pretty much 24-7, even at night. I do still have periods of, of um, stillness in my awareness. But when I am aware, I'm aware that I'm it's just like, I, that is my nature. That's the origin of my nature. And so there's nothing to forget because everything I am is identified with the origin of my nature as being. Hmm. So when you look at the camera or the lights, uh, what do you see? I see myself in that form. Hmm. So there's never a misinterpretation anymore that this is something other than me. As a matter of fact, I can't even fantasize something that wouldn't be me. Hmm. And, and it's, you know, the air, the sky, the clouds. And I don't mean me in the little sense of that Stan has all that within him. Right. Not at all. The person Stan, the body Stan, is within that unbounded being. But it has its awareness focused here. Would you say that you identify more predominantly with that unbounded, I think you just said so, that with, yeah. with that unbounded being as being what you are than this body as being what you are. Yes, I have no fear. Of th th well, I know death is impossible anymore. Right. So there's no attachment to the physiology, mm -hmm. but there's a love for it. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a question, I think, on something that you shared with me about how does it affect it? initially. I lost 100 pounds within three months after the first experience. Huh. Yeah, well, how does it affect your diet yeah. was one of the questions. And, and because I had such a beautiful regard. But there was also a tremendous flatness that my intellect had to deal with. Mm -hmm. Because everything was inside of myself as being, there was very little motivation to do anything um, and take any action. Because I saw it all as a net sum gain of zero hmm. in the long run. And I had to almost intend myself to re-engage. And that re-engagement took me about four or five years. Hmm. And I also had to learn about myself as being. Just because I had the knowing and the experience of being, I didn't have the intellectual comprehension of what that really meant and how to really function as being. Hmm. Um, and so I've been spending, ever since then, developing more and deeper appreciation hmm. of, of what I really am inside this, this beautiful universe, as a universe. Eckhart Tolle said that when he woke up, he basically just sat on a park bench for a couple of years and fed the pigeons because <laughs> you know, there was, yeah. wasn't much else he felt like doing. You yeah. know? And, yeah. and then people started asking him questions. He yeah. started answering them, and things kind of started rolling. And, it was you know, very much like that. Yeah. It was very challenging for me. And I can just remember reading in the Gita, take action. And so I didn't want to take action, but I knew that that was the proper thing to, mm -hmm. for me to do. And it was that engaging in action again that I think brought me back in because there's very little attachment to anything at all. Now, if you're, let's say you're repairing something and you whack your thumb with a hammer, mm -hmm. I mean, doesn't the, your identity as Stan become rather intense at that well, point? Uh, I feel the pain on uh -huh. the physical level, but then I also sort of laugh inside and think, I wonder what message I am giving to myself. Hmm. And because I see everything now as intelligence. Everything that happens, whether it's a car accident or an illness, um, I recently had about with prostate cancer, and I had mm. to have my prostate operated on. And I went through non-attachment to the physical form. I thought, well, I've already been through death. There's nothing to worry mm -hmm. about there. And do I really want to stay in the body? 
And so I kind of went around and did a little canvassing and asked some friends, you know, what's the deal here? <laughs> and I had a lot of people that wanted me to stay around, uh -huh. so especially my children. Right. And so I decided to stay. But I went through it in sort of a noble way. I went through and said, okay, well, this is part of my karma. Mm -hmm. And um, for whatever reason, let me bring to the experience as much charm and understanding as I can possibly intellectually muster. Hmm. And so I wasn't perfect at it, and I felt all of the physical challenges with weakness and, and, um, and the pain of the operation and so forth. But mentally, I was sort of in much more um, peaceful and a harmonious state and, and trying to make it meaningful. I mean, I even joked and I told jokes to the people that were going to operate on me just before they put me under. Mm -hmm. and things like that. So it was much easier for me than I can imagine other people may have gone through. Do you find that your awareness of being or your appreciation of yourself as, as being kind of oscillates or comes in and out of focus at all? Like sometimes it's less predominant, sometimes more predominant? Or is it really a solid, steady thing which nothing can overshadow in the slightest? I'd like to say it was a steady thing that nothing can uh -huh. overshadow. But I had an experience about three years ago where I had finally um, found uh, an individual that I could communicate very, very deeply with and that understood that state of being from a personal experience. Mm -hmm. And it was almost like two parts of myself alive in the relative. Hmm. And I became very um, uh, dedicated to trying to do experiments and to see if we could really um, work that relationship in a very unique way. And then something happened, and that relationship was severed. Hmm. And for about three days, I went through a kind of a... Is it a romantic relationship? Or it, was a, it was a different thing. It was an intellectual and, um, and a heartfelt, because mm -hmm. I can't separate myself anymore. Hmm. Uh, whatever I decide on the intellect or in the heart, it's all one thing. Or with the spirit, it's just one wholeness, maybe with different qualities of expression. Mm -hmm. And so it was extremely challenging. And then I met a friend that said, well, why don't you look into this reaction and see what it has to tell you. And I realized that there was some psychological healing in my memory that I hadn't really come to complete fulfillment in, and it released that. Hmm. And, uh, and, and then I felt that I had gone, then I went to another level of accepting myself in the relative as an infinite being. It was a hmm. very interesting thing. Prior to that, I felt like I had left the relative and experienced being, and then after that cleansing or, or stress release or whatever you want to call it, I felt that I was more integrated in the relative in my body and in being at the same time. And that's mm. remained very clear since then. So it's almost as if the relationship with that person was an impetus that was given to you to kind of it was, have you work through this thing. When we, because we did experiments, we said, well, we'll reflect the deepest parts of each other that need to grow and mm -hmm. we'll, we'll embody that so that you can give each other a mirror to see what you have to work on if there's huh. anything left. And I think that really happened. Do you mind my asking if why there was a falling out with the person who had such a deep it affinity? It was falling out. They oh. became extremely ill, and I thought they probably were going to pass oh. away. And I was like, wow, I was just getting to a point where I was going to work into the future um, on some very deep spiritual and, and uh, uh, paths, and then mm -hmm. you know that was taken away, and why was it taken away? I see. Yeah. And that's why. That was why. Yeah. Did the person pass away? No, they didn't. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Were you married at the time when you had your awakening in 94? I was, yes. And it was a very difficult thing for my uh, relationship with my wife because after I had that complete understanding of my true nature, I couldn't be attached to something and be in love with something. And I tried to explain to her in the best way I could that I am love with you, 
but not in love with you as an individual person. And all my wife heard was, I don't love you. Huh. And I probably wasn't very good at explaining the difference because I was still, yeah. it's very challenging to try to understand yourself that way, um, intellectually. It was wonderful when the being was just unbounded, but when I sort of got fooled into coming back into the relative, mm -hmm. I attached to a desire, and the desire was to give back to the teacher that I felt was most responsible for my becoming aware of being, mm -hmm. I wanted to come back and give that person a gift of mm -hmm. my life in some way. Mm -hmm. I thought, I can't give them money, but I can give them service. Mm -hmm. And so that desire welled up until it became almost like a very, very great idea, and mm -hmm. but it was still in being. And then I heard again that sound and the rumble. And what I felt in my, as I was still unbounded awareness, but I felt in that awareness as though I were churning within myself. It sounds very strange, but if you could take a, a big container of like uh, whipped cream or shaving cream, and if you stirred it, even though it was transparent and you couldn't see it, there'd be a sense of churning. And that's what I felt. I felt that all the molecules in the universe were repositioning themselves to create an experience in time and space that would allow me to give the gift to this person that I wanted to give. And then this roar started again, the one that I had experienced on the way in, and it got so loud. And then what I realized when, when it was at towards the end of the relative of the absolute experience was that it was breath filling my entire physical body again um, with with oxygen, and it was my inhalation that I was hearing at a very very subtle level that sounded like all the roar of all the uh, covalence of atoms and and uh, molecular forces in the entire universe, and it cognized back into just air coming into my own lungs. Hmm. And then the world was relative again. And this was during a particular meditation again, this, this was, was all happening? experience. I stayed in that state of being forever, and uh -huh. then an idea arose right. in infinity, and the idea sounded like a really, you know, it just felt like it needed to be expressed. So are you referring to the, the meditation period in 94 at which you had this whole thing? Yes. Oh, I you would call that a continuum from here, uh -huh. but from there, there was just infinite being forever, uh -huh. and then that welled up and came into relativity. Uh -huh. <laughs> now, you kind of made it sound a minute ago that you know an awakened person would have a hard time having a, a close, personal, loving relationship with a wife or something like that. Um, and I'm sure you didn't quite mean that, but I, you know, I know plenty of awakened people who are married and happily so. So maybe you could comment on, well, on I that. I don't think it's very difficult. What I think, what I was trying to um, convey was there's, there was no individual attachment, but there was, in, there was infinite love without individual attachment. So would you say perhaps that, so in other you words, know, there's so many songs that say, I need you. Right, so the need element wasn't there. All of that was Right. In fact, I mean, think of it, all the songs that are written, and it's all about wanting and needing and, yeah. and you know, going crazy because the, the person has left and yes. so on. So what you're saying is that all that drama kind of dropped off. And out of a state of fulfillment, exactly. love was perhaps more than it had ever been. Well, I understood that the whole universe is nothing but love. Huh. So I wanted to try to share that I am love with you, but I'm not in love with the person that's in the body necessarily. And she wasn't able to understand that I quite. I couldn't explain it very well. <laughs> 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 but that didn't just happen in my, my relationship with my spouse. That happened with my career, 
with my children, with everything in the relative field. Hmm. So everything fell away very, very, very quickly. You lost your career. Well, I didn't lose it. I just had no more interest in it. You so had to sort of shift gears. Yeah. yeah. And children? And children, my children still say, Dad, you're not who you were before. Mm -hmm. But I don't have any memory of who I was before. Hmm. <laughs> not, do they, not do they no, like not who you are now? I mean, I met yeah, your we daughter have a, a couple of Yeah, years. we seem to have a very, very good relationship, yeah. at least with one child. My, my son's still not sure, but my, um, mm -hmm. my daughter and I get along really wonderfully. Yeah. yeah, well, he seems like a nice enough guy. Yeah, I, I, I <laughs> ought to be. I'm not sure what you were like before. I don't remember that, you know. <laughs> and, and, um, and so my whole goal is to be as kind and as generous and life-supporting to every part of the relative field mm -hmm. as I possibly can. Um, that doesn't mean that sometimes I don't get frustrated, or, or but it means that always my, my deepest goal is to be as nurturing and as supporting as I possibly can. Hmm. Alrighty. Well, um, I have some questions here. That sure. um, I've, this is the third of these interviews that I've done. Okay. And uh, we're building a, quite a list of people who like to watch them um, on YouTube or on FPAC. Uh, and there's actually a chat group that's been established where people are just chatting all day long about these points, and about half the people who've joined the chat group have themselves awakened, so oh, it's that's awesome. really a high-caliber discussion. Yeah. Uh, but in any case, uh, some of these people have submitted some questions, and uh, I'd like to run through some of them with you. Um, so these are not in any particular order, but since you awoke or shifted or whatever you want to call it, yeah. um, how has the experience of certain human emotions changed for you? You've kind of touched on these, but let's go through some of them. Yeah. So happiness, for instance. Happiness has expanded tremendously. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I would say that almost, almost all the time, like 99% of the time, I'm very, very happy. Mm -hmm. um, I, do, I do have uh, occasional moments when I can intellectualize for some reason, but then it doesn't last very long because I can't forget my nature. Mm -hmm. And so maybe just for some s small minutes or some cases I can uh, start processing why did this and this happen or that, but it really doesn't last very long and it's very, mm -hmm. very short-lived. So even you uh, could even feel a little wave of depression or something uh, like that, but it would Yeah, but it doesn't, it, it just dissolve. dissolves yeah. fairly quickly, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think over the last several years, it, maybe if I've had six or eight hours t total, or 10 hours, maybe that's of... of All totaled over the last <laughs> six years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So hmm. at least that's, that's what I'm remembering. Yeah. How about fear? Fear is very interesting. Before my experience, I'd been a very, very shy person. I'd gone to 17 sc different schools before I went to university level, and I never was able to make friends. Um, I, and I always felt insecure and not good enough to be who I am. I couldn't even go shopping and pay the grocery clerk for my wares. I just felt, hmm. and so public speaking was impossible for me. Hmm. Uh, I used to dread, I used to be one of the people in the classroom that would count all the students and try to remember where I'd be and learn that word because when the teacher called on me, I'd draw a blank. I was just uh -huh. incapable of, uh -huh. or if, um, just various things like that. And then afterwards, I can remember immediately joining Toastmasters because I felt I had something to share and I wanted to be able to share it fairly coherently and, uh, and, and convey my message clearly. And so I joined them and they asked you to give sort of an introductory speech and I said, I'm the universe. And, and they kind of laughed and they said, wow, you know, what are you talking about? And I <laughs> said, well, that's who I know I am and that's why I can stand up here now is because I'm not afraid of that at all. Hmm. And there's nothing here but me. 
And then I went and I, um, I actually got some speaking engagements like at Lilydale, which is a spiritual community in Western New York State. Mm -hmm. And I remember speaking in front of an auditorium that sat, I think, 12,000 people or something. And I stood up there and I just looked around and it was kind of funny. At that time, it was such a new experience for me that I was in unbelievable joy all the time. And I would just look around and go, wow, this is myself. You know? ah. And here I am on the stage of myself. You ah. know, it was a very funny thing to see, yeah. There's a, a verse from the Upanishads which says, certainly all fear is born of duality. Yeah, yeah I can believe that. So you know, yeah. duality yeah. dissolves, fear can no yeah, longer be yeah. found. I, I asked, you know, my experience holds that to be true. And it makes sense the way you explained it because, I mean, if there's nothing other than yourself, what is there to be afraid of? Yeah. You know, I'm not afraid of my own hand. Right. Might be afraid of somebody else's hand because I perceive it as separate from me, but not my hand. But there's also something, I mean, I'm not going to walk across a type water be wire between two buildings right. either. There's a rational sense of, of taking care of my There's a physiological response, right. wouldn't there be? I mean, yeah. if someone hung sure you from the Golden Gate Bridge yeah. by your ankle, you'd probably right. be getting some adrenaline and some, yeah. yeah. But what used to happen was I would talk myself out of things because I was afraid of my predicted outcome, uh -huh. my imaginary outcome. Uh -huh. And that doesn't happen anymore at all. Right. You know, as a matter of fact, I found that if I have some residual resistance, I usually go after that thing because there's some more um, freedom and growth empowerment mm -hmm. yeah. that, I'll, uh, that I'll absorb. How about compassion? Have you become a more compassionate person? I believe I have tremendously. I can remember before that having a big discussion with a friend about how relationships weren't very important in life. Mm -hmm. And that was my point of view. And now I think they're the most important. And I can see, because I can see that everything is contained in an infinite continuum, and that's my own nature, then every single thing that happens, whether it's a thief or a murderer or a sick person, that's all part of my own nature, my, my, my own being. And so even though I might not agree with that point of view or what's happening, I try to absolutely be non-judgmental to that at all. I don't have to try. It's just is non-judgmental um, and just have a compassion role. And I, and I kind of say, well, thank goodness that that soul took that path because it freed me up from having to mm. take it. You know? There's an interesting thing here, which is that people hear someone like you saying these things. And they, I think they have to be reminded that when you say, I am the universe, or, or I see myself in everything, and things like that, mm -hmm. they're not refer you're not referring to the body that no, we ordinarily, that most yeah. people identify themselves as being. Right. And I mean, even historically, you know, Christ said, I and my Father are one, mm -hmm. no man cometh unto the Father but by me, yeah. and so on and so forth. And if you, if you take the I or the me in those phrases, as being the individual who lived 2,000 years ago in this right. particular place and walked around for three <laughs> years and did those particular things, then it gives a very different interpretation of the whole thing than if you understand that you know, the greatness of such an individual lies in his being much more than an individual, in his realization yes. of his universal nature. Mm -hmm. And it's beautiful. In as much as I can say that the air is part of my body, the air that I'm breathing, mm -hmm. but if I were to be identified with the air, then I could say the air is part of everybody's body. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I identify with my own awareness being part of everything that's relative. So I'm not certainly taking it personally, right. <laughs> but I do really know from the level of being that there's nothing outside of itself. Mm. Do you ever get angry? Um, I don't know. I get, well, it's, it's kind <laughs> of interesting. If somebody cuts me off most of the time, I'll 
think to myself, where is the opportunity here for me to do some kindness? I had an interesting thing. I was driving around with some people in the car a couple of, maybe two years ago, and I went to get into a parking space and somebody almost slammed into my car and he rolled down his window and he was screaming at the top of his lungs. I hadn't seen him heading for it and I didn't even know. And he had children in the car. And, and I thought, instead of being responsive to his anger, I just said, I'm very, very sorry that if, if I've come in, in, you know, in, in, and interfered with your plans, and I saw that as an opportunity to present to the children some uh, point of love because I immediately felt compassion for them, that they had to live with a parent that didn't have a, a fuse at all. Mm. And, and so mm. it, that's a way that I tend to respond more often than every... And I've had car accidents where I've gotten up and shaken the hands of the person and say, well, nature has gone to great lengths to put us into con contact. Us. What do we have to, <laughs> what is it that we can share from each other? <laughs> yeah. Share, me your, share your yeah. driver's license and <laughs> registration, buddy. <laughs> but sometimes it's been really fascinating. Yeah. And, and they'll open up or they'll, they'll have some information or something that's very important or something that I've been looking for. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Um, you mentioned that you lost 100 pounds after you had this yes. awakening. Was that kind of spontaneous? You lost your desire to eat so much? Or you, you I had wanted a, a to taste for different things? Or I wanted to, I kind of felt my body was this wonderful temple, mm -hmm. and I wanted to let it shine forth and, and to be as healthy and radiant as I, as I could enjoy it. Um, and then, I, then, this is an interesting thing that happened. Very slowly, I was absolutely um, energized, incredibly so, r right for, for months and months and, and even into years after the experience, but almost as though sand trickling out of an hourglass, I felt as though my energy was very, very gradually declining, that, that uh, incredible extra bliss. And for several years that happened. And recently um, I, I went up to the uh, medical center, um, I'm a veteran, and they diagnosed me with um, uh, sleep apnea and since I've been able to get a deep night's rest, I, I thought I was sleeping all night, but from that point on, it feels like my energy is being re-energized. So I think I physically just um, sort of ran out of energy. Sure. Um, and now I'm back at the gym and I've lost 30 pounds recently. And I don't think that that ever changed. It's just that I, wasn't, I didn't have the energy to maintain it mm -hmm. and on a physical level, yeah. If you could uh, talk to the Stan Kens of 1985 or 1975 or some such thing, some point, uh, earlier points in your life, <laughs> what would you like to tell that person? Even five minutes before I had the experience, uh -huh. I would have said, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I tell my future self now mm -hmm. that, you know, whatever we are now is, is very, very finite compared to the expansion of, of who we're becoming. And to just enjoy every minute. I think the thing that I have the most respect for is that every minute is the only time in all time that that moment will happen. Mm -hmm. Like this moment we're having together. F in all time, this is the only time this will happen. Mm -hmm. And it's to be cherished as something wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, that's how I you know, approach the moments of the day. Yeah, that's a nice take on the whole living in the now thing that so mm -hmm. many teachers teach. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, just sort of relishing each moment and getting the full yeah. value of it. Yeah. Do, do you, and I, in my experience or my understanding, 
it's not contradictory to make future plans and all, or even to think about your past if that's appropriate. Yes. It doesn't mean you're not living in the now. You mean you're living yes. in the now thinking about what you're going to do next week, you know, <laughs> yes. making your plane ticket reservations or whatever. That's an interesting point. Yeah. And I think that people misunderstand that. I mm -hmm. think they, they think living in the now doesn't mean having any future plans. But certainly, I have a lot of future plans. I know that right now that anything I desire or intend is fulfilled. I don't have a time frame on that fulfillment because I have virtually forever. Mm -hmm. But I know it is fulfilled. Fulfilled meaning? Uh, meaning well, that it's interesting you should phrase it that way, you know, because, I mean, for some reason I'm thinking these Bible quotes, but another thing Christ said is that what, whatever you desire, believe that you have it and mm -hmm. you shall receive it. And yeah. so, you know, the way you phrased it was it's fulfilled now, not like it's going to be fulfilled, yeah. but it's fulfilled. It is fulfilled. Yeah. And I might not be experiencing it right now, but I know it's done. Huh. And so I've tried to really expand my capability for what, what do I want fulfilled? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things is that the world has become a cherished gem experience for me. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to be able to stay in the relative for as long as I choose. Mm -hmm. And that means really a really long time, I think. Right. <laughs> so I'm intending. Well, you may very well stay in the relative, but <laughs> not necessarily in this body. Well, you never know. You I never mean, know. You know. In I fact, I, I once heard yeah. Marshy say, you know, he said, if we want to be immortal, there must be much better bodies than these in which to do it. Yeah, that's possible. <laughs> you know, so so I'm, I'm experimenting with and intending and holding that intention. Mm -hmm. and, and things are changing. I mean, medical science is now promising us very long lives. Yeah. And I believe that that has an influence on my entire world. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so I, I believe it's sort of, it, I, for, uh, here's another very important thing that I'd like to make very clear. It's only been for the last two years that I realized that I probably never thought anything in my life. That, that this unbounded intelligence has been doing the thinking, doing the thinking and mm -hmm. I've identified it with myself. You've co-opted so the thoughts. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. thought it was mine. Uh -huh. And so I don't take responsibility for them any longer. And, um, but, but what I do do is find some charming and I, and I, um, I like to entertain them. <laughs> but there is, I mean, a, isn't there sort of a localization of thoughts? I mean, you're having your thoughts, I'm having my thoughts, the guy in the control booth is having his thoughts, and we're not necessarily privy to each other's thoughts, nor would we want to be. There is sort yeah. of a, a, a kind of a focal point in the individual structure in which thoughts and perceptions and desires take place that are, yeah. yeah. Well, how I understand that, and it's my own understanding, having thought through it, is that we all have a whole history of life experience, cellular experience, uh, socialization, and that becomes sort of a filtration mechanism. So maybe the original channel broadcasts the same signal, mm -hmm. but we all understand it through our own kind of cultured um, awareness. And um, <laughs> mm -hmm. so I'm not so sure there's a real separation at any level. So what you're saying in a way is that there's this, clarify this if I, if I misstate it, but that there's a, um, as if a frequency, like you get from a radio tower, mm -hmm. and there can be many radios around town picking up that frequency, and each radio, to stretch the analogy a little bit, could change the frequency somewhat to, to you know, broadcast it or to emit it yeah. in its own unique way. Mm -hmm. uh, some may be kind of out of focus, uh, you know, a little bit off the beam, yes. others tuned in nicely, some with nice big speakers, others with little teeny speakers mm -hmm. and so on. So what you're saying is that each of our individual thoughts, desires and so on are kind of um, channeled or localized expressions of a much more cosmic of an, of intention. Of an infinite field of intelligence. Uh -huh. And we just yeah. kind of 
co-opt them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. a friend of mine likes to use the phrase that we're all sense organs of the infinite. Well, that's really just as you know, yeah. we have our eyes, our ears, but like yeah. that, you're a sense organ, he's a sense organ, yeah. I'm a sense organ. Yeah, I, I have no argument with that. As a matter of fact, many times I sit in a field or something in the summer, and I think of the millions and millions and millions of sets of eyes and ears mm, of all the insects and the animals and the trees and the cells, and they're all perceiving itself. You know, it's really an amazing Perceiving thing. itself. Yeah. Elaborate on that phrase. Well, there is only the being of, of the, the self, and it's expressed in the relative, mm -hmm. but they're, they're witnessing from their perspective what being is mm -hmm. in that form. Now, that's, that's the interesting thing, because being seems to kind of get localized and lose itself. I mean, the cricket probably doesn't sort of appreciate being the way you do. He's yeah. just got his little cricket nervous system, and he's living his little cricket life. And he, as a cricket, he has no clue of what the bigger picture <laughs> right. is, you know. And it seems like a, an awakening to an enlightened state mm -hmm. is the awareness. It's it's a trans, I don't know, it's a transition mm -hmm. uh, out of the or beyond the the kind of localized bound state that crickets and frogs and and you know hedgehogs and dogs and cats yeah. and monkeys and elephants and up the evolutionary scale, all of them thinking that they're only this flesh-bound individual, and mm -hmm. suddenly you realize, I'm the source of all those things. I'm the self yeah. of all those things, the soul of all those things. Yes. I'm, I don't mean to put words in your mouth no, or right. take over the, the yeah. dialogue here, but... No, that's absolutely true. <coughs> and, and I think that it's our great uh, gift to have an intellect and an awareness, and that through meditation in my life, I've been able to cultivate that awareness so that it's on most of the time mm. and and so it doesn't go back to that state of non-awareness and just doing it, it becomes awareness in doing now i have friends who have a meditation or had a meditation background but who eventually kind of rejected the whole thing and uh, decided or, or thought it through and decided that uh, meditation ultimately causes you to lose your uniqueness or to lose your individuality because you you kind of read these stories of people saying I have no ego anymore there's no <laughs> you know there's no individual you know yeah, nobody's home. Cell, nobody's <laughs> home there are people who write books with titles yeah, like that's that right. and you know that to, to this these friends I, I have in mind is a very distasteful idea mm -hmm. not, not something they would aspire to and they, they kind of feel that the whole Eastern approach to um, Enlightenment is misguided yes. and possibly dangerous. Yeah. What would you say to that? Well, I'd say two things. First of all, don't reject something you haven't got a good understanding for. Well, but they were meditating for some time, but then they... But, yeah. you know, I meditated for well, pretty close to 20 years before I had this experience. Mm -hmm. And I would have never, ever, ever in my greatest imagination cognize that that was even possible. Even what though you had read descriptions of it. I read everything. No idea that that's what until <laughs> you experience that uh -huh. unboundedness, you can't even comprehend it with your intellect. Mm -hmm. No way in the world. And it's, I don't feel anything reduced at all. Mm -hmm. If anything, I feel expanded to infinity. Mm -hmm. you know? And I still have my a personality because if I'm in the relative, there is a personality associated mm -hmm. with my physiology. Do you feel like there was anything whatsoever in your life that was worthwhile that was lost? Well, there are some things. There, I remember when I started to um, um, not lose my consciousness during sleep. Mm -hmm. 
actually, I kind of mourned it for a few weeks. I thought, oh, I can't just go unconscious anymore. I'm, I'm awake. And I'll have to explain <laughs> that a little bit because you, you mentioned sleep apnea yeah. and people might misassociate yeah. what you're saying. No, it's very different. It's, it's like, it's like the, the dreamer is awake, whether it's in the daytime or, or during the dream at night. Mm -hmm. There's somebody behind the dream watching what's going on. Mm -hmm. and, I, and, and there came a time um, where that was just on all the time. Right. And I thought, wow, I, I don't get a chance to just go off anymore. And you might have been snoring like a sailor, I but never heard inside. It. Yeah, I was in silence you're and awake. just watching. Yeah. 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 Same thing happens with me sometimes. My wife will wake me up and say, You're snoring. And really? I'm like, what what is I know. <laughs> I know. It's so interesting yeah. when that happens, you know? Yeah. Huh. So, so, so that's very, very important to understand is that that. So you kind of missed going unconscious. I kind of missed that. <laughs> yeah, when I realized, oh, I just can't be totally innocent and um, and uh, out like a light no there was something like I felt was lost was like the um, the innocence of ignorance mm -hmm. was lost yeah and I couldn't just do things any longer <laughs> in ignorance and get away with it because I was, uh, I was watching myself all the time huh. interesting <laughs> so th I, I became responsible <laughs> sort of like you, uh, you graduated from law school and became a, a, a judge, yeah. and the judge better watch out. Can't get away with the things that the ignorant man well, can get away with. It could do anything it wanted to, but it no longer chose to do anything, uh -huh. and it was watching all the time. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. I'm again, reminded of a biblical phrase: "Forgive them, Father; they know not what they do." It's really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So. Let's uh, take a little break, and right. um, we'll continue this in just a moment. You're watching Buddha at the Gas Pump, uh, an interview show in which we discuss awakening or enlightenment or self-realization or whatever you'd like to call it, but we're not discussing it in the abstract. We're not discussing it as a sort of a metaphysical entertainment. We're talking with people who have actually undergone such shifts, such awakenings, which makes it a whole lot more interesting in my opinion. Uh, my name is Rick Archer, and this, in this uh, interview, I'm talking with Stan Kenz. Um, what do you do these days, Stan? I mean, what is your profession well, or activity or whatever? This is an interesting thing. I'm actually formally engaged as a student at Maharishi University of Management mm -hmm. in the business department, and I'm in researching um, the ability of a person at different stages of consciousness mm -hmm. to achieve meaningful results with the idea that perhaps in management, if we had people with certain ideal states of consciousness, they might be able to get things done much more readily for, a unit, mm -hmm. for an organization. So that's my formal. Um, but what happens on a daily basis is that I realize that the whole universe is extremely, everything is intelligent because there is nothing but intelligence and love. And so usually, and this happens quite often, something will come to my awareness. And I have a rule that people first and things uh, second mm -hmm. and you know <coughs> sounds so like Susie Orman <laughs> <laughs> there she is Does she, yeah. yeah she says people first uh, yeah. uh, things second yeah and, like and so you know and then plans third or whatever right. and so very often nature will come and I can I'll get really right to the minute where I sit down and pick up my pen and then something will happen and I just mm -hmm. laugh because mm -hmm. I think to myself wow you know, I'm glad I'm not sort of trying to run the show with my intellect because it's something much more um, expansive and holistic is managing that intelligence. Are you doing well as a student? Are you able to write I finished with papers all my uh, yeah. easily and all? 
all my academic work is finished, and I'm just doing my research Working right now. Uh, you got to write a thesis or something. Yeah, and uh, and um, I'm coming up with wonderful, wonderful anecdotal stories, um, and we're able to then take a look at a person's consciousness and triangulate their state from a self-report, from EEG um, uh, readings, and also from peers. And we can say, well, that person, although you can't really tell what state of a consciousness a person's in, with certain different psychological testing and so forth, we can get a good indication. And if their peers are saying that and they're feeling that something's happened and the EEG equipment is, is you know, confirming that, then we can say, well, they appear to be at this state of consciousness and here's how easily or difficultly they're achieving mm -hmm. results. I might mention that um, Marshy University of Management, where Stan said he's a student, is a university here in Fairfield, Iowa. Mm -hmm. Uh, which was founded in the early 70s by Marshi Mahesh Yogi. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was the founder of the Transcendental Meditation Program, and everybody yes. on the campus of this university meditates twice a day. Yes. Uh, many of them come together in large domes mm -hmm. um, to practice their meditation and related techniques yeah. as a group, yeah. in groups. Now, in Vedic science, they mention that as a person's consciousness expands, then their ease with which they get their desire fulfilled also um, quickens. Mm -hmm. And so I have a very quick little story that I'd like to share. I was doing a, um, a book review with a, with a class and I asked them to get this particular printing of How to Know God by Alistair Shear. Mm -hmm. And I had heard that Alistair Shear had a deep insight into the translation from Sanskrit and that it was a very good um, translation. Well, when the class came together, everybody informed me that that book had been out of print for several years. And I had never met Alistair. I didn't even know what country he came from or anything. And I said to the class, I said, well, let's intend to get his permission to use a reprint for, for our group. Well, that was on a Monday. Thursday, I got a call from a gentleman who'd come in from another country and was a visiting professor in the town that I was living in. He'd taken a book from the library and my business card fell out of it. Must be something on the card that he was found interesting and he asked me if I'd meet him for coffee. And we had a very, very wonderful conversation. As a matter of fact, we closed the coffee shop. It lasted for several hours. And as he was leaving, he said, I come from England and he said, I went to school with a fellow that I think would really like to meet you. And he said, I'm putting his name on this business card for you with his phone number. He's in India right now and he's staying at this hotel because I talked to him earlier tonight. And he said, but he'll be leaving tomorrow on tour and he won't be available for several weeks. And when he handed it to me, it was Alistair Shear's phone number. Huh. And out of five and a half billion people on the planet, mm. within three days, nature had given me, or somehow I got the support of, of something organized, and had given me the name that I was asking for. So the next time the class met, I had reprints with the permission. Huh. And it was just, it's so very amazing. Cool. Very, very beautiful. And that just fills you with bliss when something like that yeah. happens. I was on a meditation retreat one time, staying in this facility that was kind of out in the middle of nowhere, quite far from the nearest town, mm -hmm. and I didn't have a car with me or anything, and I needed a bunch of things, uh, and I didn't see how I was going to get them, because okay. they weren't available there at the facility. Mm -hmm. I needed, some of them were of the nature of office supplies, and, and one of them was like Brasso for cleaning oh, brass yeah. things and like that, a little bit of an unusual thing. And uh, I also had a pair of Florsheim shoes which had gotten wet, and then I dried them with shoe trees in. And the, the decorative buckles had snapped oh, right. and <laughs> okay. broken. Oh, wow. And so I didn't know how I was going to get those, but I wanted to repair my shoes. Yeah. And so I was moved from one room to another. And in the new room into which I was moved, I found almost all of these things. There was a jar wow. of Brasso and some the kinds of office supplies yes. I wanted. 
but no decorative shoe buckles. Oh, wow. But <laughs> I was walking to dinner that night, yes. and I was walking past an, an air conditioner in the hallway, mm -hmm. and something caught my eye at top of the air conditioner, and I reached up there. There was a pair of decorative no shoe way. buckles. No way. Oh, isn't that amazing? That fit my shoes. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> that's really amazing. <laughs> yeah. And they weren't the, my original buckles. I mean, they, I don't know how they that's got there. That's amazing. <laughs> Just, I want to touch on one more. Last year, um, somebody very, very close to me had had to surrender their car because they had lost their job and they didn't have an income and they couldn't make their car payments. And they came to my house and they were kind of really sad and depressed and what are we going to do and how are we going to do it? And I said, just don't worry. Nature will take care of that. And as we were having that conversation, somebody came into the yard that I had gone to school with. They said they were leaving the country and going back to their home country. And did they know of anybody that they could give their car to? Wow. And that, that just worked out. It was like yeah. in minutes, you know? Cool. Yeah, really fun. Now, uh, shifting gears here a little bit. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there are a lot of people in our town, Fairfield, Iowa, who have undergone spiritual awakenings such yes. as yours. And not only Fairfield, I mean, people all over all the place over these the world days. Now, yeah, yes. it's really becoming kind of an epidemic. It is. <laughs> it should be making news <laughs> right. much more than swine flu. I think so. Yeah. Uh, but some of the people that I know who fit this description mm -hmm. um, have concluded or felt that it's no longer necessary for them to meditate. They feel mm -hmm. that they're in, they're permanently established in the state that meditation aspires to get you to. Okay. And so they, they see no point in it. It's yes. like a waste of time. Uh, I take it that you still meditate. I still do. So how, why do you and how do you relate? How, what would you say to those people who don't do it well, anymore? I'd encourage them to reconsider. Mm -hmm. And in, it's my personal experience that my evolution continues and continues to get richer and richer and richer. Very often now when I come out of meditation, this started happening about a year and a half ago, my body is saturated with a sense of bliss that's absolutely exquisite and it lasts for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And um, I walk around like that for hours sometimes. And that never happened even after my experience of being. Um, so I think there's a purification until you know, until you're able to fly through the air and walk through walls, I think you can still evolve. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you should mention that. I want to get to that in a second. But, um, well, the people I'm referring to, I have a couple, a couple of people in mind specifically. I won't mention their names, but they feel they're progressing. I mean, yes. you know, they one breakthrough after another. Every week it's something uh -huh. new, very interesting. Mm -hmm. It's just that they, they seem to not feel that meditation is a necessary part of the mix anymore yeah. for them. Well, I have... I've tried to understand on an intellectual basis, and I have a take on it. I believe that when we transcend, it's just like going into a theater, and when we transcend, our molecular structure disperses and becomes being. Mm -hmm. And we don't have a memory of that because nothing, there's no sensory experience there, it's just awareness. And most people don't have enough awareness at that stage of unboundedness to really cognize what's happening, so they have no awareness. Mm -hmm. And then we recoalesce. But in the process of doing that unbounded expansion, we sort of become the hard drive that runs the intelligence in all time and space. And that hard drive gets tweaked a little tiny bit every time we do that expansion, and it corrects or it re-coalesces into a universe. Defrags. Defrags and writes in parts of the new program to fulfill the new desires. Huh. So if we see the world as doing this or that, instead of focusing on it, just being in our awareness, our molecular um, uh, cellular awareness at the deepest levels makes a correction for it. Mm. And unless we plug into that um, program and unbound ourselves, the correction doesn't, I, I believe the correction doesn't have 
as much um, effect. So what you're saying in simple terms is that meditation still serves a function as a, an opportunity to kind of fine tune and, and facilitate readjustments and... It's, it's <laughs> I go into unboundedness, mm -hmm. the corrections are spontaneously occurred, I don't have to think about it at all, and I come into the relative and I enjoy a richer, more evolved state of the relative. Aren't you already in unboundedness before you sit down and meditate? Yes, but there's still an intellect that overrides that awareness. And then overrides meaning well, in other words, it doesn't overshadow it. It's simultaneously in the program, uh -huh. and I'm, and I just take that out, so it has right. no no influence on okay. it anymore. So you might say that when you're not meditating, when you're engaged in your daily activities, yeah. like right now, right. there's the unboundedness, and then there's also the intellect, the senses, all this other mm -hmm. stuff going mm -hmm. on. But when you do meditate, all that stuff kind of relaxes back into unboundedness and you just yes. enjoy un unboundedness by itself for a while. Mm -hmm. And, and that has its own value. It has a value. It rewrites or redirects the universe. Mm -hmm. I remember one time a very, very profound teacher um, of mine made a statement and he said that the mind of man was the organ of order for the universe. Mm -hmm. And without having to mind about it, <laughs> we just transcend the, the minding and then the organization happens spontaneously. It's interesting because the mind of man has created an awful lot of disorder. Yes, it has. And, um, but, but I think know. the man he was referring to was the man that right. was awake to his own yeah. nature. Which is a, a, an interesting point because more, more people who are awake to their own nature may j be just the antidote to all the disorder that it's people... It's very possible. And really when you think about it, even though the disorder, the disorder is only the orderliness with a mistaken point of view. <laughs> it's still functioning. It's still manifesting the relative field. All right. I got an interesting email just uh, about the day before yesterday from an old friend of mine uh, who is on a program that's called the Purusha program. And okay. wh what that is, is it's a program where single men who have chosen to become single in order to completely dedicate themselves to attaining enlightenment mm -hmm. uh, do just that. And uh, this particular group that this fellow is on is way up in the Himalayas in Uttarkashi, India, okay. with a quite a, you know, fairly group, large group of guys. And mm -hmm. for years they've been spending, I don't know, maybe eight, nine, ten hours a day well, medi meditating and doing related practices. Just pedal, m you know, pedal to the metal. Yeah. Is that phrase? Okay. Yeah. Uh, doing everything. And he, but his, what he said was rather poignant. He said that a lot of the, his friends in that group are going through a sort of a midlife crisis now because mm. they're sort of beginning to feel like, hey, you know, we're getting older mm. and I don't know if we're going to get enlightened. Wow. And um, I find it ironic that out here in the so-called mud, yes. there's all kinds of people getting enlightened. Uh, and I, I imagine that a number of them are and, and maybe for some reason just don't quite realize it. But one thing he said was, you know, that he, by his criteria were that being able to levitate or you know perform mm -hmm. rather miraculous things w were the um, the benchmarks or or the criteria of established enlightenment. And if okay. you couldn't do those things, then you just weren't there. Okay. And if that is the case, it's he's setting, in my opinion, although I've heard you know great teachers say this, he's setting the bi bar rather high. It is rather and high. Because yeah. I've never seen anyone do any of those things, but I have. I'm sure I've seen quite a few enlightened people in mm -hmm, my life. Mm -hmm. um, so what do you say to that? Well, I, I also um, don't readily levitate and I don't <laughs> walk through walls very often. But I've had other, more, m most amazing experiences 
And I just say that maybe my physiology isn't refined enough yet to be able to do that. And so even though my awareness, you know, there's a very interesting um, um, precursor to the relative. I think it's, you know, soul and then emotion and then mind and then relativity or something like mm -hmm. that. There's a staging of things manifest. So on the level of um, mind, we're, we have a lot of people that are enlightened and I think it's just a matter of time now before that becomes a level of the relative. But their own awareness is already at the level of mind and it's already there. So to clarify what you said, so it's only a matter of time before what becomes a... Uh, well, be before that unboundedness... People levitating and stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, I think that's really, really very, very close. And do you think when that happens, if it happens, that people who are doing such things will be any more enlightened than people are now? I think they'll be just saturated in bliss 24-7. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I think enlightenment for me is waking up to my own true nature. Mm -hmm. That's like the, That's the threshold. Line, yeah. Yeah. And being awake to that all the time. Right. And then the icing on the cake is how long can you live to enjoy the relative expression of that? Uh -huh. And what happened, Rick, this is important too, I reread or, uh, first of all, I got rid of my whole, I had a monstrous uh, library of, of spiritual work and so forth, and I realized that all of it was written by people that didn't have the experiences. All of it? Well, very, very oh, large percentage. Yeah. And, the, and the small percentage that was written by people that did have the experience, I didn't have the experience when I read it the first time. Right. So I had to reread and relearn every single thing that I held to be valuable mm -hmm. after I had my experience hmm. because I saw it from a completely different point of view. Um, and I think that that's like that. I think we're going to see that as people bring into the relative that unboundedness that we'll see the relative respond very, very, you know, directly to that. Yeah, it's and you're speaking a little bit abstractly, but what you're saying is that, you know, as enlightened states become more common mm -hmm. uh, and even perhaps the norm in s at least in some areas mm -hmm. uh, that things which were once considered miraculous the performance of cities and so on will yes. be c be can become more commonplace also mm -hmm. and will be considered perhaps normal manifestations mm -hmm. of these higher states of consciousness there's a book that i hold you know that that um, yoga sutras of patanjali's is a wonderful it's kind of like a bible for me uh -huh. and it talks about how a person evolves and what they're able to do but one of the most important um, uh, statements in it is that a person has to be an in integrity in order to have whatever they want in the world mm -hmm. and to me that integrity means that they have to actually experience and believe what happening. So you just can't say to yourself, okay, I know that I'm all there is and I'll be able to walk through walls because you still have residual intellectual values that don't really believe that. They mm -hmm. can't be honestly um, uh, supportive of, of that attempt. And slowly, through very, very gradual um, loosening and expansion of what you feel the relative is, the relative becomes a much more flexible and um, interactive media of your own awareness. Mm. And would you say that you're really altering your beliefs or would you say that, you know, that that's putting the cart before the horse and what's really happening is that your experience is changing and naturally when your experience changes, your beliefs alter themselves to accommodate the new experience. I really can't separate the two any longer. They go hand in hand. They're both hand in hand yeah. and there's more than just both. There's several things. There's the desire 
there's the fulfillment, there's the witnessing of it, there's the integration of it, there's the metabolization of that integration, and then there's a greater expansion. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not as though something new is being learned, but the resistance is being dropped because you're witnessing and you're, and you're experiencing and you're believing the, a greater truth. And, and so the, the greatness has always been there, but the filters have always been tight and they're just relaxing and becoming transparent. Hmm. So, just want to dwell on this, this yeah. point a little bit more. Um, everything's happening simultaneously. Mm -hmm. um, on all levels. Yeah. Now, and obviously you're doing different things. You're, you're meditating, you're doing spiritual practices, you're reading books and perhaps thinking and talking about mm -hmm. these things. And those are different sort of facets of, you know, of our, our activity. And if we thought of, you know, our, our makeup as being like a table with, with four legs, you can pull any one leg and the rest of the legs are going to come mm -hmm. along, along mm -hmm. with the whole table. So, so like that, you know, I mean, would you say that um, there can be several different factors which can sort of move our evolution toward enlightenment along? Uh, the intellect can have its effect and, and you can actually sort of, through some intellectual cl clarification that you might get from talking to somebody or reading a book, some change can take place in your understanding which in turn will pull the leg of your experience along Absolutely. or it could happen the other way around. It happens just the way you said but also the hand that's reaching out for the leg uh -huh. is the same as the material of the leg now. Uh -huh. So you're witnessing that all of that, the whole action so your stage is the, the self. Right. So that makes it much more um, uh, simultaneous. Well yes but much more integrated. Mm -hmm. There is no this any longer. It's a part of my being that appears to my intellect and my senses is this, but I know that I'm one with it. Mm -hmm. So that knowing makes, it gives me a different relationship with the whole relative field. Hmm. Is the knowing just as predominant or more so than the intellectual and sensory evaluation of this thing? Yes, the knowing is more real for me than the intellectual huh. and sensual. So primarily, you know this as yourself. Yes. Secondarily, you know it as a notebook. That's correct. Uh -huh. yeah. And, and that's spontaneously the case all the time as you walk down the street, drive your car, eat lunch. Absolutely. And, and if I can just share, it's like a king knowing he's a king, mm -hmm. he commands the kingdom. Mm -hmm. But not knowing he's a king, everybody can boss him around if mm -hmm. he doesn't know who he is. <laughs> okay, so when you, when you know that you're part of the entire kingdom, it's part of your own awareness, then you have a different relationship with the entire um, environment and with the world. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's not the same as a person who doesn't know that. Here's a question out of left field. Um, a lot of people consider celibacy important for gaining enlightenment. Mm -hmm. Do you have any comments on whether or not it, it is? Well, I've never been celibate for like major periods in my life. Uh -huh. I've had some um, short periods, months or so of uh -huh. celibacy. And I found that in some of those periods, my actual spiritual experiences were enhanced. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then when those periods were over, Maybe they weren't, they weren't as much flashy experiences happening. Mm -hmm. So I did find some relationship, mm -hmm. but I can't talk from a, in a life of celibacy because I don't have that mm -hmm. experience. Yeah, well, uh, it obviously yeah. didn't seem to <laughs> be a problem. Um, when you had this awakening experience in 1994, yeah. was there anything leading up to it that, you know, looking back, you feel tip, you know, might have been symptomatic of, of 
the approach of that transition? Or yeah. was life pretty much exactly as it had been, <laughs> no. and all of a sudden, kaboom, kaboom, you had this thing? Yeah, it actually, there were quite a few things leading up to it. Um, two very important things that come to mind. The first one is, ever since I was a little child, I wanted to sort of love the world like, oh, I come from a Christian background, so St. Francis of Assisi was able to talk to birds and animals, and mm -hmm. I wanted to have that relationship with the world. And also, I, um, Christ was one of my mentors and, and uh, spiritual leaders, and I wanted to have that unbounded, un, you know, compassionate love. Well, there was a time then that I became so open to love that whatever I put my attention on, I f almost fell absolutely in love with, whether it was a tree or a cloud or a person or, or whatever it was. And <laughs> I actually felt broken. I can remember crying and sobbing because I didn't feel like I could live with that kind of love. Hmm. And, and it, over too much for you oh, to it was totally overwhelming. And this was before your awakening? Or yeah, after? yeah. Oh, before, okay. Yeah. And so I had heard that there was a place um, where there was a sort of a spiritual uh, shrine that I could go and I wanted to go and sort of bear my soul to, to God or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I went there and <laughs> I sort of said, look, it, if there are such things as saints or, or God or Buddha or Jesus that have attained mortality, I hope you can hear this prayer because I'm, I feel broken and I feel like I can't live with this kind of love in my life. Mm -hmm. And I stayed there and it was quite an emotional thing for me. I cried and I laid on the ground and I spent as long as I wanted to there. It was a very private uh, little shrine. And, um, and then the curator came in and he said, how did you find this place? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I had just heard of it. He said, people don't hear of this place. He said, this place brings people to it. People don't find it. This is up in New York State? Right? Yeah. yeah. And I said, well, I'm here. And he said, I know you are. And he said, we've been preparing for something for five years that we're starting tonight. And you're here. Huh. And we feel that somehow nature or spirit or God has brought you here. Would you like to be part of it? And I said, I don't think I can. I said, I'm, I'm kind of a broken person. And I don't think I have anything to give. What would you want me to do? And he said, well, this is going to last for um, seven weeks. We're going to do a rather extensive ceremony that's only attempted about every 500 years. Hmm. It was called the Sri Chakra Initiation. Hmm. And I said, well, what would I do? What would you want me for? He said, just come as often as you can, every day preferably, and just sit here and radiate love. Oh, I'm the man for this job. <laughs> you know, I'm off the streets. I'm much better not even being in the world. And so I went and I sat there. And I sat there and I sat there and I sat there, mostly with my eyes closed, ignoring everybody, just trying to deal with this, with this unbounded love. And then the weeks passed and the night came when they were going to install this chakra. And over the time period, it came to my attention like, well, what is a chakra and where is it? And it's an energy center. It's a sort of a metaphysical energy center. And I thought, where are they going to install it? Because nobody was telling me any of these answers. I wasn't even asking the questions. I just was thinking about it. And I thought, oh, it's going to be installed in the people that are here. Ah. And, and that kind of dawned on me. And so the last night, as they were doing the final ceremony, he um, addressed the entire um, gathering. And, and by that time, there were hundreds of people there. I was one of the few that stayed the whole period. But the last three days, many, many people came, thousands actually. Mm. And um, he said, what this was is that there was an ancient spiritual leader who gave a gift to humanity. And the gift that he had given was that he would break human, hum, the bond of the individual 
with the, the, um, th the thing that they were attached to. So in other words, that bond of love that I had to everything was absolutely severed that night. Mm. And I was free. But with that freedom came something that I hadn't anticipated at all. And that was absolute non-attachment to everything. Mm. I couldn't care about my body, my children, my wife, my family, my job. Nothing at all could I really feel that I wanted to live for. And that's why some days later when I went through this experience in meditation, I didn't have the desire to hang on to my life any longer. Mm. I had already dropped it. Mm. In, in it <laughs> so I think that that's those two events, the, the ceremony that was being planned for three years that only happens <laughs> once every 500 years, uh -huh. my showing up, and that unbounded attachment that was so painful that I couldn't, I couldn't live with it, mm. and it was just severed. And I want to re-emphasize it in case people have just tuned in or haven't heard this whole interview that, you know, you have certainly not lost the capacity to love or feel compassion or, or no, anything else. No, not at all. All you're saying here is that the attachment component right. was, yes. was broken. Yes, the need to hang on. Right. The, uh, and, you know, need is the key yeah. word there. Yeah. I mean, what's in it for me? I need right. this. Yeah. Instead of... Right. It, it is what it is, right. <laughs> and just love it for that. Yeah. You know. But it was it was uh, felt absolutely empty at that time in my life because up to that point I had lived with attachments to everything. Right. You know, to relationships, to jobs, to career. What are you? I'm my job. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And when you can't say that any longer, I didn't have anything to replace it with. I hadn't experienced being yet. I just wasn't attached to anything at all. It's true. I mean, if you come yeah. up to somebody and say, well, who are you? They'll yeah. say, well, Joe Smith. And, yeah. and, and well, tell me more. Well, I, I have a wife and three kids. I work here. I live there. Right. I like skiing. I do this. You know, I, I have my appendix out. You know, they, they go into all these little specific things. Yes. But are any of those who they right. really are? Yeah. I don't know. So now, I'm, and I, if somebody asks me, I say, I'm more than I can even imagine myself to be. <laughs> are you... Um, very open uh, on campus about the fact that you've had this awakening? I don't actually broadcast it. I kind of fly below the radar. Right. Going on you know, television here is hey. going <laughs> to change that. Um, but I'm not trying to hide it either. Right. I just feel that if, if it's necessary, nature will ask me to share that. And if it's not, then I don't have the need for my ego I mean, to You must to have talked it. among your fellow students and friends and so on about these things. Uh, a lot of people aren't too interested, actually. Really? Yeah. On a campus where everybody, for, where education mm -hmm. for enlightenment but is I'm the in motto? But I'm in the business department, you know, and uh -huh. so a lot of people come from non-meditative backgrounds and stuff. And there are certain people that are very interested, yeah. you know, and have made those friends. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. And uh, do you ever encounter people who are skeptical about it? Like, Well, yes, and I don't feel a need to convince them of anything. Right. When I first brought up the concept of doing this show, you know, s some people were really enthusiastic, mm -hmm. but others said, oh, yeah, right, you're going to interview people who think they're enlightened. Yeah. Think, you know, emphasis on the word think. Right. <laughs> so when, before I c um, started tonight, I was going to open by saying, I don't know if this is the truth, but it's what I believe to be my truth, and I don't know if it's real, but it's what I remember happening to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's all yeah. I can really what, say. What can anybody say? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that might be a good note to end on. <laughs> okay, <laughs> wonderful. Right. Well, I've been talking with Stan Kenz uh, in a show which we have newly entitled Buddha at the Gas Pump. You look a little bit like the Buddha. Yeah, you hopefully I won't perhaps. so much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I hope you've enjoyed this uh, show. We continue. We plan to continue doing them weekly. Um, they will be broadcast on FPAC, and at some point, we'll be um, telling you 
the exact time. They'll be broadcast every week, so you can set your DVR. If you don't get FPAC, which is the Fairfield Public Access TV station, which I think you have to have Mediacom in order to get, then they are also on YouTube. And uh, there's a YouTube channel where I will be uploading these interviews. I've already uploaded one. At the end of this show, there will be some titles that will stay on your screen for some time, which will give you the web address of that YouTube channel, also the web address of a chat group where people are discussing the kinds of things that Stan has been discussing, and maybe Stan will join it himself and sure. you could ask him questions. And also, I think my email address will be there, Rick Archer, in case you'd like to get on an email notification list to be notified of future um, interviews and you know changes in schedule or anything of that nature. So thank you very much for, for watching, and we'll see you next week. Thank you, Rick. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you, Stan. Really enjoyed Good it. One. Thank you. Thank you. <coughs>